this is my funny story. I went into Scripps Clinic in La Jolla okay. to apply for a nursing position. And I came out with a study coordinator position. And wow. it kind of it kind of happened in in a in such a way that I didn't walk out with the job, but I walked out with knowing that I'd gotten the position and really not knowing what the position entailed. Um, I walked in, it was, it was serendipitous, right place, right time. I walked in, I applied. The recruiter said to me a sentence that changed everything for me work-wise, which impacted my personal life and transformed everything in such a positive manner. Um, she said, do you know anything about clinical research? And I said, no, because transparency, as you know, as a recruiter, transparency is key, pivotal. You never want to be dishonest or deceptive about your experience, especially in clinical research, because it will hurt you later and it could impact patient safety, credible data. I didn't know that, but I'm always been transparent. So I told her, no, I don't know anything about it. She said, do you want to? And I said, absolutely. Because two things were motivating me. Curiosity. I've always been a very curious my husband says I'm nosy. I like to think I'm just curious. That sounds um, great. <laughs> I've always been a curious person. I've always loved unraveling mysteries. I was drawn to medicine and healthcare. My father's a surgeon. My brother's a surgeon. My dad's a nurse. My whole family's medical. Wow. And I've always been drawn to medicine. And so I was very interested in research. And I also had student loans. So mm. I had, it was the perfect marriage intersection of need and desire. Today, you'll be hearing from Elizabeth Weeks Rowe and her story of how non-related jobs and interests come together in ways that you can't always figure out ahead of time. It's also a story of curiosity, perseverance, and very strong determination. Elizabeth has worked in the clinical research industry for over 21 years as a clinical research associate trainer and manager. She has written articles for clinical research publications and is a frequent speaker for industry conferences and currently works as a principal clinical research associate in study startup for a life sciences company. So if you are still feeling that something's missing in your career and wondering how it will all come together and what your next step should be, take a listen. So I'm so excited to have you here today, Elizabeth, and welcome. Thank you for your time. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And thank you for having such an interesting and dynamic podcast that empowers and helps us encourage each other as women in this career field and in all career fields. It's so important and it's not done enough. So thank you for that. Oh, you're so generous, generous with your time and acknowledgements and <laughs> checking it out ahead of time. I think that speaks a lot about who you are. So um, I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about how you got into clinical research and started your career, you know, as a clinical research associate. Um, I'm happy to. It's such a funny story. Um, and it's so, it speaks to, you know, you said I have 21 years of research experience and I love that I do. And I love my career. I'm obsessed with it. And I feel very fortunate to love what I do, but I also hear that and I'm like, wow, I remember when I was the new kid and now I'm not the new kid. <laughs> now I'm like, right. for lack of a better word, now I'm like, I was mentoring a CRA the other day and she's like, how long have you been doing this? And I said, 21, almost 22 years. And she goes, 
wow, you must have been around when they still had paper CRFs. And I was like, oh, yes, I was. Thank you for <laughs> reminding me. So I just think it's really funny. Um, anyway, uh, I am a licensed vocational nurse, uh, LDN, and um, in other states, it's a licensed practical nurse. I, 22 years ago, I was looking for a change. I had been working, I worked for health companies. I worked for a large um, shipyard as the nurse. I'd done a lot of diverse nursing, but I wanted more therapeutic challenges. I wanted to work for a world, world famous organization. And San Diego, where I live, has a plethora of very well-known health institutions. Okay. So I applied for a nursing. I went, in, this is my funny story. I went into Scripps Clinic in La Jolla okay. to apply for a nursing position. And I came out with a study coordinator position. And wow. it kind of it happened in, in, a, in such a way that I didn't walk out with the job, but I walked out with knowing that I'd gotten the position and really not knowing what the position entailed. Um, I walked in, it was, it was serendipitous, right place, right time. I walked in, I applied. The recruiter said to me a sentence that changed everything for me work-wise, which impacted my personal life and transformed everything in such a positive manner. Um, she said, do you know anything about clinical research? And I said, no, because transparency, as you know, as a recruiter, transparency is key, pivotal. You never want to be dishonest or deceptive about your experience, especially in clinical research, because it will hurt you later and it could impact patient safety, credible data. I didn't know that, but I've always been transparent. So I told her, no, I don't know anything about it. She said, do you want to? And I said, absolutely, because two things were motivating me. Curiosity. I've always been a very curious. My husband says I'm nosy. I like to think I'm just curious. That sounds um, great. <laughs> I've always been a curious person. I've always loved unraveling mysteries. I was drawn to medicine and healthcare. My father's a surgeon. My brother's a surgeon. My dad's a nurse. My whole family's medical. Wow. And I've always been drawn to medicine. And so I was very interested in research. And I also had student loans. So mm -hmm. I had, it was the perfect marriage intersection of need and desire. Um, mm -hmm. To me, clinical research was the, the scientist, um, bench research, wild hair, white lab coat, under the microscope. Mm -hmm. I had no idea. And this is how it was back in the early 2000s. People, a lot of people didn't know about the clinical research career path. And then they, we call it, you fell into research trial by fire. You're probably familiar. I mean, I seem, I think I'm much older than you, but you might know from your experience as a recruiter, a lot of people 10, 15 years ago fell into this career field. They did not know about it. And I'm but so many just, people fall into their career. Like that's how I started like recruiting. I think that's oh, like really? a story of so like a segment, a big segment of people. It's like a friend told me, an acquaintance told me, you know, this thing happened, like one thing led to the other. And here, here I ended up. That's so amazing. And it's wonderful for you because look how successful you are. And I feel I've been so fortunate because, you know, this opportunity fell into our laps and we ran with it and it wasn't easy, but we made the best. And, and here we are both happy and doing things we love. Um, you know, I consider it the biggest blessing of my professional life. Um, I told the recruiter I didn't have any experience with clinical research. I walked out. I got a call that afternoon or the next day, and I started a couple weeks later. Um, it was a very stressful um, 
it was a very stressful, hard journey at the beginning because I didn't have experience in clinical research Mm -hmm. and I didn't have experience as a study coordinator. So Mm -hmm. I walked in to the office of the PI for whom I worked. She was wonderful. She had not had a coordinator in six weeks and they didn't tell me this, which I'm happy in retrospect, but they didn't tell me because I don't think I would have taken the job because I'm a big challenge person. Even if I get, I still to this day with something new, I get anxious because I want to do a good job. I have perfectionist syndrome, which is a blessing and a curse. As you know, (laughs) I get like, Oh, what I better do the best. I better be the best. So I get that anxiety, but it pushes me. So Mm -hmm. I walked in there and I'm so glad um, that I didn't know what I was looking at. I was looking at um, paper case report forms. I'm dating myself again, paper Mm -hmm. case report forms and stacked high on a desk regulatory binders with papers strewn all over the floor. I didn't know what I was looking at. I was looking at studies that were lost to follow-up, patients that had not been contacted, medical records. It was crazy because she was a successful BI. Her coordinator had left her in a lurch, which was super unfair because she was wonderful um, PI. And they brought the PI. I'm sorry for people. I'm so sorry. I do that because I do clinical research podcasts (laughs) and this is not just clinical research. Forgive me. Um, I'll tell you two things. Principal and PI is principal investigator for okay. clinical people who are not in clinical research. This is the MD or DO physician okay, who the leads the study and who's responsible, ultimately responsible for the study. So I'm going to do that more during this. So thank you for correcting. Good clarification. <laughs> yes. And then the other thing I'll say is case report form CRF is that's the place where data is collected for, from patients and clinical trials. So I, I walked into a research department practice with this PI who who, was an internal medicine physician with a research department and she hadn't had a study nurse, um, in six weeks. And the study nurse, the study coordinator is the one who collects the data, conducts the patient visits with the the investigator for collecting the research data. Mm -hmm. Um, for example, and I won't go into too much about it, but I'll give a background. We were doing a hypertension study. Mm-hmm. The drug was being developed for lowering blood pressure. So okay. my doctor, being an internal medicine physician, she had a ton of patients with hypertension. So mm-hmm. we would talk to them about this clinical trial. We would enroll them if they met the qualifying criteria. And then we would observe them, collect data on assessments. So that's what I was doing. And I loved it. Um, I was new to everything, new to the job, new to clinical research. And it was very stressful because I was doing, it wasn't an intentional career path. I hadn't had schooling to prepare me for it. Yeah, you were kind of thrown into it. Yes. These days, there are so many wonderful career paths, university education, master's in clinical research, um, training programs, online boot camp programs that prepare clinical researchers. And I'm such an advocate for that because back when I started, I was thrown in and I learned, but it was a, a learning environment fraught with stress and anxiety. And I know that that's not uncommon. And sometimes we just have to deal with that. But at least now, career paths are more intentional. As a result, um, training programs and educational programs are offered for the people coming into our industry. Mm-hmm. And anyway, I'm digressing. But so don't I you think it was like maybe in a way... How, how long did it last a period where you felt, you know, when you were thrown in and you, you kind of had to sink or swim, right? How long did it feel stressful? 
Um, that's a great question. I'm so glad you asked that because it kind of ties into my whole mission statement about starting something new and encouraging people and just sticking it out. I would say that for three months, um, three to four months, the first month I almost quit three times and I'm not kidding you. And perseverance and sticking it out is literally what saved me and brought me here because I was doing things. I was creating regulatory informed consent forms. I was doing submissions. I had no idea what I was doing. I had help. My PI was great. I had colleagues that helped me, but it was all up to me at the end of the day. And I was so freaked out. And I called my mother once a week. Oh my gosh, what am I doing? And my mom's like, you need to stop whining, have a, have your moment of panic and then get back on the horse. So I guess the the point I'm trying to say is it was three months of pure stress and anxiety. Then I started feeling comfortable. Then I started feeling confident, but it was, it was a hard process. I was doubting myself. I wasn't sleeping well. It was the whole like panic, ah, but I never gave up. And that's kind of like, I've had the good fortune of doing a lot of cool things, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, but I've, I, I, my parents taught me and my mentors taught me never give up and really, really lean on your, your support network, mm-hmm. your family, your partner, you know, mm-hmm. your, your mentors. And maybe you can speak to that too. It's interesting that I know this is, you're talking to me, but do you mind if I ask you, how did you fall into your position? Cause it's fascinating. You're so successful. That's funny. Uh, yeah. So um, as I mentioned, you know, a little bit before it was, you know, when I graduated from college, it was like I graduated and then moved to the closest biggest city, which at the time was Charlotte, North Carolina. And, and, you know, and then I graduated with a business administration degree and it's like, the most generic degree, right? And then like, what do you do then? Uh, And then I kind of tried, I think, for a few years, different sales jobs, different companies, you know, and and then um, throughout the time, I came across um, a woman who said, hey, I know this staffing company locally, you know, I've done some recruiting and they're hiring like pretty much entry level people or people who don't have recruiting experience. And then it's kind of like following the breadcrumbs. It sounds like similar to your journey that I didn't have an intention to like recruiting was not even, I didn't even know such a thing exists, honestly. (laughs) And, And it's like, you know, it's just following the breadcrumbs, you know, I reached out to the person, they invited me for an interview and I got the job and I started. And similarly to you, the first year was like, hell, I feel like I, I worked, I think. 10, <laughs> <It's> like hell, <laughs> that's what it is. Like 10, 12 hours, you know, it, it didn't feel easy um, for sure. You know, uh, but once you kind of, I mean, and it's beautiful that you said that because I interviewed, um, a career coach. Uh, she's a career uh, um, change strategist and helps people, you know, when they don't feel fulfilled or looking for something else. And um, and she kind of reiterated what you said about that the growth happens it, when you feel scared and excited at the same time. It does not happen in your comfort zone. Exactly. And that's why I was saying maybe it was a blessing, actually, you know, yes, all those perfect, you know, paths exist. And but but sometimes life 
comes together and you have the opportunity and you go for it. Um, you know, it, that's so interesting that you did that and you took the risk and you took the opportunity and you made the best, but what you said is so beautiful and true. Um, when you're comfortable, I think if you become too comfortable, you stagnate yeah. and I joke, I joke and I'll kind of tie this into my career path. Like in my life, when I've been the most successful is when I put myself out there mm -hmm. at risk of failing. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and during the upheaval. I'm thinking to myself, I did this to myself. Like, like my first time I spoke in public, I spoke for ACRP, Association of Clinical Research Professionals. They're a professional organization in clinical research. For those that don't know, they have the certification of clinical research careers. You're probably really familiar with that. And I'm a, I, I work with them. I speak at the conference. Yay, I'm speaking this year. They accepted my abstract. They don't always do that. So I was very happy about that. Mm -hmm. But back in 2015, I spoke at an ACRP San Diego local chapter meeting but I reached out to them because I thought if I want to go on this path of writing and speaking, I need to start. Things aren't going to come to me. Right. And they said, yes, you could come speak. Yeah. Cause I was like, no, they're like, who are you now? And I'm like, Oh, I, I want to speak. Let me tell you. And, um, you don't know why no one does. So it's perfect. But um, <laughs> they, they're like, okay, who are you? And so I, I spoke and it was so funny because I was nervous, even though as a CRA, I do a lot of public speaking. It's, it's part of my job. This was a volunteer thing. And okay. then my brother and his wife, um, my brother and his wife came and it, it was at Scripps, my old stomping grounds. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm getting nervous. And my husband's like, relax. And I'm like, I can't relax. Don't tell me to relax. And, and I'm thinking to myself, I did this to myself. So anyway, um, you're so right. What you said, the most challenging circumstances are when we shine or fail. And if we fail, it's okay. And I'll kind of tie that into my journey. Long story short, um, when I started as a study coordinator, before I was a study nurse, study coordinator, I was a flight attendant. I've always loved to travel. Mm. So the marriage of clinical research, medicine, and traveling was mm. perfect for me. Um, the first, when, when you're a study nurse, you work with clinical research associates. They are the representatives of the pharmaceutical or life sciences company who are tasked, who are running the study and who are tasked with interviewing, selecting the, the physicians and nurses and, and institutions to do it. Okay. And then clinical research associates go periodically, whether it's in person or remotely now and audit the data that's being collected to make sure it's in compliance with the protocol design. So mm -hmm. I was introduced to clinical research associates as a study nurse. Oh, wow. I had a couple, I had a couple that really trained me, helped me, helped me not only become a clinical research associate, but helped me become, um, you know, I, I saw the opportunity to this position. They traveled, they audited data. They worked with world famous, you know, physicians or small town physicians who did studies and mm -hmm. I'd hear about their stories. And I thought, this is like the perfect job for me. And typical me within four or five months of being a, a, a study coordinator, I was like, I want the next, I want to take the next step. My mom's like, like don't you think you're going to this a little premature? And I'm like, well, yeah, of course it is. It's me though. So um, <laughs> in a year I was able to get a position as a clinical research associate yeah. and it, it, but I didn't, I couldn't have done it without mentors and people that helped me hard work, determination and help from people. Yeah, that's so amazing. So wait a second. So you, when you were um, 
your first job when you were out of school, where you were, you said you're a flight attendant. I, I graduate. I'm kind of a person that had to, I'll, I'll answer that. And I was going to say long story short, but that's impossible with me. No, I'm kidding. So <laughs> um, my first position, I went to junior college out of high school okay. and I was one of those people that, you know, I went to junior college for a year and it was kind of a joke. I had no desire to be in school. I was wanting to go out and have fun, party, meet people, shop. So I went to work instead because my mom's yeah. like, if you're not going to do school, which so disappointed my family because my family are so educated. And I was like, this is not for me. I need to work. So I moved out when I was 19, started working, worked. And then I got a job as a medical receptionist. And then I got started doing phlebotomy. So my first job out, out of, outside of junior college was is mm -hmm. in the medical field, but not nothing related to clinical research. Mm -hmm. Then after I worked as phlebotomist, lab technician, medical assistant for about eight years, mm -hmm. I wanted more because I, like we talked about, I felt like I was stagnating. I didn't have a, it, a, the education required. Mm -hmm. I was kind of, I was kind of at my ceiling where I could progress, but I was always curious, ambitious. So I saw the opportunity to be a flight attendant. I love to travel. So that was the first part of my bug of being a clinical traveling CRA. So that was probably, I graduated, I, I, I went to junior college in 1989. Mm -hmm. Wow, am I old. <laughs> um, I did that for a year and then I became a flight attendant. I worked for from 89 to 94 or five. And then I became a flight attendant in 95 and I did that for two years. Okay. And wow. then after I was a flight attendant, then I went back to school. So I needed to work and do stuff. Yeah. But in that 10 year time period, I acquired a ton of skills, ECGs, stress testing, drawing blood, processing lab specimens, vital signs, back office nursing, and then traveling as a flight attendant. So I have an excellent, um, I'm, a, I'm, I'm the poster child for life experience. Yeah. And then I went back to college and did a two year, um, about an 18 month nursing certificate program, licensed vocational nurse. And mm -hmm. then I worked as a study coordinator after I was a nurse. And then mm -hmm. I got my first CRA job when I was in 2000. So that's so, the short version. <laughs> that's amazing. So did you, so did you say that you always had the knowing that you kind of on a broader scheme of things, you want to be in something associated with medicine? I did. It was kind of a calling for my whole family. I don't mean, I don't like, that's not a naive or idealistic. That's just the honest truth. Like my, my father's a surgeon, my brother is a surgeon. Well, my dad's retired, but he and my brother were in practice together. My mom's a nurse. My aunt is a nurse. Wow. Um, she was the, my aunt was the, um, she was a nurse anesthetist. She was the head of the program at a university. I mean, my whole family's medical. I have two older brothers. One is not medical. Everyone else in my family's medical. And my older brother who's in business, um, he's like so anti-medical. Like, I don't mean anti, but he's so not, he, he faints when he gets his blood drawn. He's going to kill me for saying that, but he, he's one of those people that he sees okay. a needle and he's down. <laughs> so yeah, my whole family and I knew I'd work in medical and no matter how I circled away from it, I always came back to it. And, it's and did been, you have did you have like this strong influence or pressure from your family, or you felt the draw yourself? No, no pressure at all. My parents, honestly, I think because 
I had disappoint, not disappointed them. My parents always supported me. My, my parents were like, you have no limit. You can do anything you want. You just have to work hard. So I was so lucky to come from that with my family. I never felt pressure. My parents were probably disappointed that I left school. Sure. But when I started working and working hard, they saw that I had the work ethic. Mm. And I think so. So um, I never felt pressure. It was kind of a natural return because it was deeply entrenched in my family and my upbringing. I would go visit my dad at the office. Um, I saw my dad do surgery. I saw my brother graduate medical school. My mm -hmm. mom was my dad's nurse. So it's like, it was always there mm -hmm. and it fit with my desires to help people to learn about medicine. And it was kind of just, no, no pressure. Kind of just, well, when I came back, I was, I felt like it was like home, mm. truly. That's awesome. So you were always um, connected. It sounds like you're very strong, uh, strongly connected to your own inner guidance, you know, even though like going through like how, how did all these kind of steps, right, perfectly ended up coming together? And, you know, from, from all the jobs before you being a flight attendant to being a nurse, right? It sounds like it's like a perfect cocktail and perfect mix, right? To you stepping into the clinical research plus traveling, right? It was like, I know I've used this a couple of times, the perfect marriage, the perfect intersection, but yeah. being a CRA connected medicine and traveling. I loved being a flight attendant, but I, I stopped doing it because I wanted to go back to school, to, to nursing school. I wanted to be an RN because I think education is so important. However, I, after be, being in school for 18 months in my program, I was tired of school. I love school. I love reading. And what I do in my job right now, I feel like all I do is study. I study protocols. I study study plans, but I, I was I felt contained. And I just feel like I needed to acquire all of the not skills I acquired, lab, blood draws, vital signs, medical terminology, mm -hmm. stress testing, cardiology, yeah, and then um, travel. So it was like, like you said, everything brought me to that point. So I really believe, mm -hmm. even though I had an unintentional path, I was, I truly believe with all my heart that I'm supposed to be working in clinical research mm -hmm. and I have, I, I feel so lucky to have the career that I do. So that's, you're absolutely right. It all was the perfect storm to lead me where I am today. Wow. That's amazing. And do you, um, do you feel like you're living your purpose? Like that is your purpose, you know, that thing that you came here to do. I absolutely do. And I'm so lucky because I feel like, I feel like firstly, my parents giving me that opportunity, giving me that knowledge that my only limit was myself. Um, my parents were like, yeah, you can do it. You need to work hard. You need to try, but you can do it. That's that was how we were raised. And when I wanted to become, when I was a study coordinator, well, actually first, when I was a flight attendant, um, that, that confidence, that willingness to take risks helped me yeah. because I wanted to become a flight attendant and my attitude, which is great, but also not great was I can do it. I can do anything. And it's a wonderful attitude to have, but when, when you fail, which you will, it, it can, it determines failure determines how you're going to, how you are. So I'm so happy because even though failing and making mistakes is hard, mm -hmm. like I'll give you an example. 
I have learned to see mistakes and rejection as another opportunity to prove myself to myself and to whoever. Mm -hmm. Um, I interviewed for Southwest airlines and I thought I can talk to people. I want to be a flight attendant and they're a great airline, but I, I I did not get the job. I guess I didn't do well. I thought I did, but guess what? Guess what? I didn't. So Mm -hmm. I got the rejection notice from Southwest airlines. This is back in 94 or five. And then the next day, I went and interviewed for another airline and got that position mm. the next day because I was like, my brother's like, you're not going to let this. When I got the rejection letter, my brother said, you're not going to let this stop you, I hope. And I'm like, nope. He's like, feel sorry for yourself for five minutes, have your pity party, and then get right back out there and don't whine to me. That's what my brother said to me. And I was like, okay. So I literally got the rejection letter was really devastated, cried. And then I started back when you looked in the paper, the physical newspaper for jobs. LinkedIn wasn't around. Um, I looked in the paper, found an interview for an airline. Um, They were called Reno Air and they were great. They were bought by American a long time ago. Flew Mm -hmm. to San Jose, interviewed, got the job, did that for them for a little and then moved to an airline in San Diego. But that was the first taste of Oh, you're going to tell me, no, I don't think so. And that really framed everything in my life. It framed my desire to be a, uh, when I was a study nurse, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, my supervisor at the time said to me, I don't think you will become a CRA. You don't have an advanced degree. Mm. And as a, as a, as a director and as a team leader, and I'm, I don't know you very well, but I know you're super supportive. I know you are. I can just tell. And a manager, she said the absolute wrong thing to me that she could have, but thankfully I did not let anything she said um, navigate me. I don't know why she said that to me. She had been in her position for 18 years. Mm -hmm. She was a very educated, smart, good lady, Mm -hmm. but she put limits on me, which I think anything you can do wrong to an employer or a child, you put limits on them. Yeah. you have to be realistic, but you also, you know, even if you're, if your kid wants to be the president, but you know, they're probably not going to, you should still encourage that greatness because good things will come of it anyway. So she told yeah. me that I couldn't in my mind. I'm like, just wait. That's what I said in myself. I said, just wait. And, uh, nine months later I gave my notice and I wasn't bitter. And I wasn't like, you know, ha ha, I did this. It wasn't at all. It was like, it was like, I did it. And she didn't say congratulations. She didn't say anything Mm. and, um, unfortunate, but you know what? One supervisor of 20 more who were amazing. Mm. Um, and so I became a CRA and then I became a CRA manager, but that was a perfect example of trying something prematurely, but at least I tried because two years into the CRA manager, the CRA position, I wanted to manage clinical research associates. Okay. But I was, I was so not prepared, mm-hmm. but, and people even said, temper your ambition because this is probably not going to happen right away. And I was like, oh no, I'll do it. I've, I've been successful. Well, I interviewed, I did not interview well and I didn't get the job, but at least I tried. Yeah. And it put me on, I put me on the path. I put it in, out there in the universe because I'm a big believer in throwing stuff out in the universe and planning and intentions and vision boards. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm going to do this. And so five years into my CRA career, I became a CRA manager. Amazing. So 
it was great that I fell on my face, which I did horribly because, Hey, guess what? Next time I did it. Yeah. That's amazing. I think you're like a shining example. You know, in the past, I used, I, uh, a lot of the times when people hiring managers, you know, look at resumes, they value, you know, if you've been with a company or in a position for years, right. That you haven't jumped around. And for years, I thought that is really admirable, right. When you can stick with a job and, but honestly, I've so changed my mind. Like what you're talking about, the exploration, right. How you have pivoted, you'd start a job, you get good at it, figure it out. And then you follow, okay, something is missing. And you, you know, your twenties, your thirties is exactly the time to do it. Right. And you pivot and you go and you don't sit like in that job for 10 years. Right. And how beautifully things have come together. I think that's the ultimate courage. Oh, thank you. I, I, I think that a life well lived mm-hmm. so far, I mean, I'm 51. I, I don't feel 51. I feel so young and i i love our industry for that i hear people talk about ageism and mm-hmm. honestly i have not seen it i have worked at different companies with colleagues who are in their 70s doing mm-hmm. this job well better than i can ever and i just think that that plays into the wonder of of trying something new and if you fail you tried which does count I don't care if people say failing, if you try, is as important as succeeding because you learn lessons and you take those lessons with you to the next opportunity that will make you even better. Yeah. So you, if you have an open mind, I have worked with people of age, different ages, different countries, cultures, fantastic. My husband says I've created this rose colored world and I have, maybe it's denial, but I'll tell you what, my whole career journey, failures accomplishments. I've, I've, I've had two things that I live by. My first manager told me when she helped me get a job as a clinical research associate, the mon, the CRA that I worked with when I was a study nurse who helped me get a job with her company. I said, how can I thank you? Because my salary jumped, my opportunities jumped Mm -hmm. when I became a clinical research associate. And Mm -hmm. she said to me, do it for someone else. Um, and, and that sounds like a, a, such a, you know, oh, anybody could say that that's so cliche, but it's not because I have been helped so much in my life. I have helped people in my life. Mm-hmm. And I think in a world where everything is framed by controversy, negativity, oh, a pandemic, oh, the world economic crisis, ah, everything's in shambles. Mm-hmm. Really? If you look around even in the crisis times, there's beauty and good things that come out of it. And yeah. I'll give a perfect example. And I, I, I'll, you can probably speak to this, Bible because you're in, you know, a director and all that kind of stuff. The pandemic was terrible, awful for so many people. It yeah. changed the landscape of, of clinical research with introducing the use of Zoom and video conferencing platforms and remote monitoring. But it also created the need for so many jobs that People who before couldn't even get their foot in the door to work in clinical research, now the, the, the industry is like, oh, welcome, because we need you. So it, it cleared the playing field for people to come into this industry. 
Mm. And it used to be that you had a study nurse with 12 years of experience. No one would even touch her to be working for a pharmaceutical company or as a, a clinical research associate because she didn't have the experience in that role. And mm. we speak about open-mindedness and the importance of diversity and being open-minded. Employers seem, and you're the expert, but employers seem to be considering different skill sets now mm -hmm. because they have to, to fill positions. I don't know if you've experienced that. Have you experienced that? Yeah. And I would say that um, that is definitely like, I think that will, we, I'm definitely proponent of that mindset uh, because I don't think it's helpful when you get super stuck as a hiring leader on like ABC skills versus looking at the underlying factors, right? Underlying foundational aspects of what really will drive success, right? And the skills, the tools and everything can be picked up. And I think those will be, those are the hiring managers, right? Who actually can fill their positions faster, right? And can uh, have their teams fully formed and can, you know, promote their people, drive, you know, actually success and evolution of career for career path, as you said, for people. So uh, I'm definitely a proponent of that. Yeah. I think it's so exciting. Um, I mean, right now in clinical research, at least, you know, COVID pandemic created, you know, the, the accelerated timelines for drug development and vaccines. And I mean, terrible things came out of the pandemic, but it seems like wonderful things drove change and, and innovation. And, um, you know, you talked about open-mindedness and, and the underlying skill sets. And I think that's so important. Um, I wanted to talk to you about one funny thing because yeah. my, I, I, my, you know, there was a joke that someone asked me, what's your daughter doing for a living? And my dad looked at his watch and said, what time is it? This is before, sorry, this is before I started working in clinical research because I had to find my way and do a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I've, I know I said, oh, thanks dad. That's, that makes me look great. He's like, honey. I'm just telling the truth. <laughs> like, okay. But um, um, I remember I've always, I, I've, I've always felt drawn to medicine and I fully believe I'm doing what I'm supposed to. I've mm -hmm. always also been a writer. And someone asked me about this because um, I started writing poetry when I was five. Wow. And then I wrote in high school. Um, and I wasn't published until I, I got published in, in, in high school. I wrote an article for the local paper, but that wasn't any big deal at all. I think somebody, somebody knew my, my dad and my, I don't know. I think that was, I was helped a lot, but um, I've always been a writer and I've always known since I was five years old that I was supposed to write. Wow. Um, and I, I started in clinical research and in 2008, I submitted an article to ACRP Monitor Magazine, the Association of Clinical Research for ACRP, um, the certification and the global organization. They have a, a very well-known publication. It was called The Monitor, the magazine. Now it's The Clinical Researcher. Mm -hmm. And I submitted an article and I thought, you know, I've always been told I was a good writer. And I thought, well, I, I hope I get published. I think I will. And, but I wasn't sure, right? Because I had had a lot of rejections from normal, traditional publications. Nope, nope, nope. Okay. And they, they actually wrote me back and conditionally approved the article I wrote. Um, one thing I, I always talk about when I speak or when I've written, you got to take your ego out of it. And my ego was very present in that first submission because 
I thought it was a great article. And, and when they when they conditionally approved it, they it was skewered. Fix this, change this, write this, blah, blah, blah. Keep, mm-hmm. Keeping the spirit of the original content. And I was like, I told my mother, I'm so dramatic. I'm like, oh my gosh, they, they, they skewered it. They changed it and artistic integrity. And my mom's like, oh my gosh, get over yourself. My parents are super like common sense, work hard. And my mom's like, you have an opportunity to be published and you they don't look at the, 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 the comments for change as anything, but an opportunity to facilitate your dream. So I got over myself and I did the edits and I got published and that led me to so many opportunities to be published because I learned that editors are there for a reason and they know what they're doing and they know better than I do what's good for an article. And as much as I was able to write articles in clinical research and, and you know, kind of use my creative I like creative writing and science writing. I kind of combine it to create, um, I write based on my real life experiences. I change Mm -hmm. names and situations and I don't name people. Um, But a good editor told me, she said, write real life. Because I was writing technical stuff about informed consent and delegation of authority and all these regulatory things. And she said, write real world. People don't want the technical with this kind of thing, write real world. So I started writing a column for CenterWatch, which is another clinical research publication. So I thought, oh, I'm gonna write a book because I've always wanted to write a book. Wow. I wanted to write a fictional, a non, a, a, I wanted to write a, a, a fictional book about um, a clinical research person, like mm-hmm. a coordinator uh-huh. who had to overcome stuff. And it, it was loosely based on me, loosely mm-hmm. based on colleagues. It was not um, about me though, it was about, a. Uh, was a compilation of different stories of coordinators and CRAs I've worked with who inspired the character. And I thought this is another example of falling flat on my face and failing miserably, but then good things came of it. So I I wrote, I I tried to sell my idea to editors and do you want to get on the board with this? It's going to be a world famous book and blah, blah, blah. And nobody, nobody wanted to have anything to do with it. So I'm like, okay. And then my, my husband's like self-publish. So I did research on Amazon, self-published uh-huh. the book. It uh-huh. was it was hard because I had a full-time job and I was doing it on the weekends, but you know, you have a dream. So I was doing it evenings and weekends, struggled. I spent not a lot of money, but you know, you have to pay people to do book cover designs and put your book into electronic format, and blah, blah, blah. So mm-hmm. then I was like, I'm going to launch this book. And then I launched it and bunches of people were happy for me, but I sold <laughs> I sold so few copies, mm-hmm. like after the initial family and friends and people bought it, yeah. support nothing, nothing. Okay. Like I did, I did miserably as far as sales and I, it was such a great experience. And my husband is so supportive and he was like, Hey, you did it. Yeah. It's like, I didn't luckily I, you know, well, not luckily I didn't, it didn't sell very well at all. Okay. It still sells a little bit here and there and it's gotten more momentum Okay. I did it. In, I did it in 2014, and after the initial like family, friends, and people did it, the sales were miserable. But it led to other writing opportunities. Okay. Um, and so that experience was frustrating and hard. But mm-hmm. now, seven years later, it has led to people are like, "Oh, you wrote a book," and it's like, "Well, I self-published a book," but people were like, "But you still did it." 
Yeah. And, and then it led to other writing opportunities, um, with, with real, and I, you know, people who self-publish, it's wonderful. If you do that, it's great. But to me, the ultimate was when I got, when I did the updates to a, a clinical research guidebook, that was like, I got a real publisher. Wow. <laughs> it was me it was like the real deal and that so that the failure the 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 abject failure of my book that I self-published led to wonderful things so I don't want to say failure but you know I sold honestly like I don't even want to tell you what I sold because it's embarrassing (laughs) but it came to great things but like you said that's uh like the the fulfillment and the feedback and the sometimes redirection, like that quote unquote failure. It's like, not every door is for you. Not every door will open, but magically again, that was a crumb on the way to something else. I I do believe that. And, and I, I look back at the book and I think this is, it's a good story. It's a, I I did a pretty good job. It's a good read. It's Mm -hmm. interesting and funny, but it, it, it is not, uh, it, it was a great experience. I'll say that. Yeah. Yeah. And but it also very, helped you clarify your style, right. And knew it, like you gave you more experience and like you said, led it to maybe other styles, other different publications, you know, in different forms yes. that work and keep yeah. working. And I'm glad, I mean, I love, I think it's, I think it's self-actualization is so important and my experiences and curiosity have led me to know myself very well, the good and the bad. And, you know, um, I feel so lucky because I do feel like everything I'm doing right now, speaking, writing, working for a wonderful life sciences company, I'm supposed to be doing this. And it's not always easy. And we talked about something before, um, the Sunday blues. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I love how you think sometimes like if you have, um just to set the context like if you are you clearly love what you do you are fulfilled and self-actualized but you had mentioned that still sometimes on Sundays you have the Sunday blues I do and probably you know and it's a good it's a good reality check because I love what I do obsessively too much to the point where on Saturday my husband's like and it's not every weekend but my husband's like are you working today because I work my job, my real job, which I love. And then I do like, like right now I'm developing my slides for ACRP. Mm-hmm. I have to compose my slide deck and then maybe I want to do something else. My husband's like, are you working today? And I'm yeah. like, well, for a little. And he's one to talk because he's a successful businessman. He owns two businesses and he would work six days a week and he has. So I'm like, really, are you going to be pot or kettle? <laughs> but, um, you know, that's why he's so supportive of me working more than 40 hours a week because he does the same thing. But um, the the thing about the Sunday blues, when I stopped traveling for a, over 14 months during COVID, mm-hmm. I started feeling more of the Sunday blues because even though I still loved my job doing, you know, video conferencing meetings as opposed to in person, yeah, um, I started developing more of the Sunday blues because I missed travel and being interacting with people Mm -hmm. in person so much and even though I'd always had a little bit of that oh the weekend's over Monday and Mondays are challenging I think it's a mindset but if you think Mondays are going to be challenging they usually are Mm -hmm. but more so with COVID because even though I loved my job still I didn't love it as much because I missed the interactions so I think 
COVID grounded and made me understand that even though there were aspects of my position I didn't love because my, my work paradigm changed dramatically. I went from traveling every week to no travel for 14 months, mm-hmm. even though, even though I really missed traveling, I had to pivot my mindset because I, I had a job and I was grateful for that. And that's what, that's what things were. We did things remotely. That's the way it was. Mm-hmm. My husband has a really good attitude. And he was like, Elizabeth, change your perspective, change your life. That's what he said. And I was like, what? <laughs> and he's like, he's like, how you look at it is how it's going to be. And so how I tie that into Sundays is that on Sunday, if I start feeling the blues, mm-hmm. I, I start thinking, okay, Monday could be rough. Mm-hmm. Some days are going to be rough and you don't have to be unrealistic. Oh, everything, even if everything's terrible, I'm still going to smile. No, my attitude for the Sunday blues is even if things are hard and rocky, I'm going to keep moving forward and get through it. And mm-hmm. then at the end of the day, I'm going to go, hmm, that wasn't that bad. Mm-hmm. I guess the point is, is that not everything is going to be beaten with rose colored sunglasses. Your mm-hmm. perspective will help you realize it's not as bad as you think. And if the best you can do is get through it, then that's the best you can do. You just have to get through. Yeah. So that's, that's the Sunday blues. COVID made it worse, but my husband and my, my perspective made it easier, but I still have it. I have the greatest job and the greatest career and I'm so happy, but I still get the Sunday blues sometimes. Thank you so much for sharing that. And um, I feel like you are the poster child for knowing, really knowing yourself and getting to know yourself and through all of these experiences, right? And, And that's the power, right? Where you, okay, you observed it, right? It was what it was for the time, but you know that, and this is, I think, why it's harder, quote unquote, harder for people, because you really need to go back and ask yourself, really kind of observe your own experience and then piece the puzzle together, you know, to design your best career, like literally, because it's not the same for everybody, how you you realize that you need the face-to-face interaction that actually makes you come alive, right? And fuels your experience. And that is so beautiful and powerful. And that's why, you know, Yes, resume and career advice and and um is wonderful, but like at the end of the day, the success and the real power is in knowing yourself. Yes, and knowing knowing I talked about perfectionist syndrome and I I I'm a perfectionist, but it's it's so bad because my dad said it perfectly. Perf- the pursuit of perfectionism prevents progress. Mm-hmm. Because in trying to be perfect, you overlook what is sufficient, what is in front of you, what is important. I have spent hours obsessing over a mistake I made mm-hmm. when I'm, when, it, when, and then the world goes by and I'm like three hours, where'd the day go? Well, now right. I have three or more hours of work to do because of my obsessiveness over what I did wrong. So yeah. it's good to recognize what you do wrong, learn, and then move on. I'm still to this day, 22 years later, struggling with how learning how to move on. Like sometimes I literally give myself, okay, you have five minutes to obsess, go back, look at what you did wrong, feel bad beat yourself up. And then you literally have to, then I'm like, make myself stop. Boom. I love that. I love that. The awareness, right. That's like, you know, that about yourself and that's a great strategy. Like whatever you're obsessing about or be, you know, spending too much time than you need to is like giving yourself, okay, 
let's say it's a slide you're something you're working on that like okay you can i i'm gonna work on it for five more minutes and that's it right and i'm gonna move on no matter how it looks <laughs> or what's on Usually the five minutes turns into 15 but it's the it's the it's the spirit of the guiding style <laughs> well, better than three hours right like maybe <laughs> step one forward two backwards depends on the day right <laughs> My husband's like, you're, you're, you set rules for yourself, but they're kind of fluid. And I'm like, yes, they are. They're my parameters. And if I want to change them, I will. <laughs> I love that. And I think we have to like, the, like I, every day I remind myself that like the life, like to try to treat life as a game. And the fluidity. That's such a great right? attitude. Everything, right. We can get so serious and I still get there and everything, but it's like, talk to yourself and remind yourself what's really going on. We're spinning on this earth, <laughs> you know, and we get wrapped up in our little perspective. No, you're right. You're yeah. absolutely right. So my husband, crazy. my husband has, um, has been a type one diabetic since he was 12 and huh. he doesn't mind me mentioning this. Um, and he's very healthy. I know it sounds like an oxymoron, a healthy type one diabetic, but he takes care of himself. He's had no long-term effects and I'm so happy but why I mentioned this is because he wanted to do when he was he had a he had his goal set from when he was a little boy his father was a very successful chef in the navy and Tony from from he's from England and from early on he wanted to work as a physical fit, fitness instructor in the navy since he was a boy and he worked out and boxed and did all these things and then he became a diabetic and guess what you're a diabetic you can't be in the military back then. Okay. And I'm telling you, my husband is amazing because he pivoted. And this is the honest truth. He absolutely pivoted everything when he was a 12 year old. When you're 12 years old, you don't have the perspective to be able to, I mean, kids adapt and they're resilient, but you know, my husband was devastated because he knew what he wanted yeah. to do. And he couldn't. I and have he a absolute, son. Everything seems big. Yeah. Yeah. And he pivoted and he, you know, he, this is back when they didn't have blood glucose testing. So he had to, they had to test a different way and he had to eat lunch an hour before all the other kids and he couldn't eat past five o'clock. I mean, it was so much harder. That's why I love my husband and I admire him so much because he absolutely changed his, he's the most positive person you'd ever meet. And he changed his entire, he, he pivoted at 12 years old. He pivoted everything and followed a new course and he went to work. And, um, you know, he worked and did school and everything. And then he did a four-year apprenticeship with the Royal Nate at the Royal Dockyards in boats and electronics. And he owns a successful marine lighting store. But, and he's worked in his industry for 30, 40 years, but it was not his first path. So I look back whenever I feel, you know, blues or whatever, I look at my husband who has the best attitude and wow. I'm like, okay, check it. Because, you know, I don't, he is, amazing and never feels sorry for himself never complains and I'm like okay that's the answer right there <laughs> you know what I mean so I'm bl blessed to have that daily example and it, it's the honest truth I mean that's how I feel I love that that's amazing yeah. I was just thinking today like um like we are in the top what one less than one percent of people like to be able to live the life that we do to have like the conveniences comfort safety it's just like we i mean sometimes i can get you know if that doesn't move me right if it you know when you really take it in then there's really nothing 
you know, to complain about. And, yes. and I know it's kind of all balanced and sometimes we go there and it's okay. But I, I think it ties back to something that you said before is that, okay, you, I allow myself for the five minutes, right? But don't stay there, right? Like the, whatever, it's like stress, overwhelm, right? Sorry for yourself. I mean, we all are human, right? We will have all these range and spectrum of experiences, but like tapping back into, you know, these examples or powerful, you know, uh, examples and admirable examples and what's going on really in the world and having that perspective it's just amazing. One thing before we end, I wanted to ask you, where does the energy come from? Where do you source the energy to do all these things? You can say hi, but it's okay. I know I'm <laughs> um, amazing. Um, <laughs> the I I you know it's so funny because the energy just comes from I I'm I'm an energetic person. I always have been. I haven't my energy level has been the same since I was a little girl, 19 to 51. I'm still hyper. Um I can tell you that I, I am not, my husband is a happy person by nature. Uh -huh. He's very, I don't know if you remember Grey's Anatomy and Meredith. I didn't watch it, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, Meredith used to call herself the main character, dark and twisty at times. Okay. Um, and, because, and then her best friend was like light and happiness and they balanced each other. Um, I'm not dark and twisty, but I am not, I'm happy overall, but I'm, I have, and I like to tell people this, you know, we can paint a portrait on social media that everything's perfect and life is wonderful, but I love my life and I'm very happy and I'm very lucky, but I am, you know, sometimes I get down and when I have a new project, I get anxious. I do. Like I literally, when I get some, assigned something really daunting for, I get myself five minutes and I'm like, Oh, what am I going to do? It's new, blah, blah, blah. And then I just dive in and I'm great. Right. So you recognize the block of nervousness and you overcome it, but mm -hmm. the energy is just inherently who I am. And it drives um, some people crazy, but I, kind of don't care about that because you have to be true to yourself right like occasionally my husband will look at me and go scale it back a mile and I'm like oh okay so then I walk around the block or do something but yeah I'm just I just am hyper that's just the way and do you drink coffee or I do I've had this is what's really funny Bible. I've had six cups of coffee today but I but it doesn't change my heart rate and my blood pressure don't really go up that much so I really like, oh so you, really, you don't really I'm, need it. No. Well, I need it because I, I get headaches if I don't drink coffee, but I'm very caffeinated naturally. So That's awesome. I love that. So how can, um, if somebody wanted to follow you or some of the work that you're doing or you've done, um, where would you recommend people, either the book or any publications or speaking? Where can people find you? Oh, that's so nice. The main um, way to find me is my LinkedIn profile, Elizabeth Weeks Row. Mm -hmm. um, the um, and and you know whenever I'm speaking or whenever I've written something, I will share it on LinkedIn. Um, mm -hmm. And you know that's my main social media driver. Okay. Um, I really don't. I, I don't. I'm. I don't have much more um, as far. I mean, I have a Facebook page, but I do way more on LinkedIn because for our industry. That's like the biggest, Yeah. I mean, YouTube, I have some videos on YouTube, not my own I, of interviews and stuff like that, but okay. I would say follow me on LinkedIn because I love to hear from people. And I also really try hard. Like if people, if people ask me for advice or guidance, I try to answer everyone back or 
you know, accommodate a phone call. If I can, I can't accommodate anything compared to what, you know, how it is, but Mm -hmm. I, 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 people were so responsive and helpful to me. Mm -hmm. And I truly believe that we have an obligation to try and help people who are new and asking for help, because that's at the end of the day, that's, all we can do that those are our connections those are how we help people succeed and when you help someone else succeed you help yourself succeed I really believe that I love that I love that and what was the name of your book that um published the the self-published book that still hasn't sold very much (laughs) is called um clinical research trials and triumphs a heartwarming novel, a heartwarming novel following a nurse's journey into clinical research. The short title is Clinical Research Trials and Triumphs, and you can find it on Amazon. Okay. Um, and you know, it's still there. It's still yeah. struggling, and I'm still <laughs> proud of it. But it's like, and and the book, the book that I did, the I was not the original author. The two original authors. There's a book called The CRA's Guide to Monitoring Clinical Research. Okay. Um, Dr. Karen Wooden and John Schneider were the original authors, not me, but okay. I had the good fortune of doing the 2016 um, and 2019 edition four and five updates. And I updated a number of things, but the original content is theirs and still stands true. Um, that's another book. It's sold on CenterWatch and, and Amazon. And that is a good, it's a good guide for clinical research associates. Um, so there's a lot of cool things I've been able to be a part of through good help and, and hard work, but, but people helping me. So that's awesome. Yeah. It sounds like those would be good resources for anybody who might be interested in exploring clinical research as an industry, what it is, learning more about it. And if it might be something, you know, that's a fit for their journey. I I think so. And I'll say one thing by, because I know I've taken way more of your time. Um, you have such wonderful presence and, you know, you, you can be on podcasts and you hear people and you kind of fall asleep. Honestly, some people should not be podcasting, but you are so vibrant and warm and thank you for letting me be part of this. And I'm so glad I got to meet you. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. You lifted my heart. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm glad. Thank you. Did you love her energy? I just love talking to her. Here are my top takeaways. Number one, start with putting your pink glasses on and you will have more fun along the journey. Number two, you can still feel Sunday blues even if you're in your dream job and dream career. This was um, kind of eye-opening for me, for sure. Number three, curiosity, determination, and positivity are superpowers. Number four, knowing yourself is a huge part of self-actualization and you being able to design a career where you feel fulfilled and truly look forward to Mondays. Number five, do you have a passion or a strong interest in a certain field or area? Use it as a potential direction point to explore jobs directly in that industry and area. And number seven, even if you don't feel like you're on track and are feeling lost at seeing how will your experiences and past jobs come together, trust the process. Elizabeth had a number of jobs that seem unrelated and before um, she ended up being in her dream job and industry, she simply put one foot in front of the other. And 
I so encourage you to find her and follow her on LinkedIn. Uh, her profile is in the show notes, so just click on it and it will take you to her LinkedIn page. And this is where she shares her speaking and writing and you can Again, connect with her and follow Elizabeth uh, going forward. I'm sending you lots of love. Do you feel like it's time to grow and advance in your career? To start feeling more fulfilled, feeling more excited, feeling more enthusiastic about your Mondays or Fridays, and also make more money and have more fun while doing it? If so, So subscribe to the podcast where I will keep sharing ideas and tools that you can use and implement right away and truly take strong, big steps towards custom designing the career of your dreams where you can truly fall in love with Mondays. And I know you can do it and you are truly the one who holds the key And you are the one who brings the magic. That is why I titled the podcast, You Bring the Magic, because it's true. Also, come and connect with me on Instagram at createyourbestcareer. I'd love to stay in touch with you and keep having these conversations and to hear from you. You can direct message me on Instagram and also suggest if you have any guests or anybody that you'd like to hear from. So I'm sending you lots of love and light and know that you are the one who holds the key and truly brings the magic.